Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor when Steve called a couple of months ago and asked if I would come this morning and uh, give the message. And I was even more excited. Weeks later, he said, let's preach out of uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the mustard seed. And I, after a while, I kind of figured out why he picked that. It's one sentence, two verses. And he's afraid I'd go for an hour. And so he's just trying to slow that down. But I start thinking, he's just, he's just like me. So we can get long-winded, right? Amen? Amen. That was your opportunity. <laughs> Don't take advantage when it's given to you from the pulpit, okay? Anyway, I am uh, Christina. She's Devlin, by the way. Praise God. Anyway. <laughs> Colin. In the car, I said, I'm second now. It's all... Colin, and I said, that's why I pray for you a lot more. So anyway, I'm not going to say anything about myself. What I'd like to invite you to do is open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, if you've not already done so. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 32. I'd like to just read them and then ask for God's blessing, and then we will expound on those two verses this morning. Matthew chapter, y'all, y'all stand for the reading of God's word? Do you mind? What? Please stand together. Get that out of Ezra, by the way. In the Old Testament, Ezra had the folks stand before the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his fields. And this is smaller than the other seeds, but when it was full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we come together this morning with the ultimate goal of gazing, gazing at our King, our Lord Jesus. Because Father, I think if we can narrow down your definition of worship, it's in it's by gazing at your Son, sitting at the Master's feet, listening to Him, seeing Him in the Word of God. So, Father, worship doesn't happen unless we gaze at Christ. And this morning, we're going to gaze at his kingdom. We're going to look at his ministry. We're going to see why he taught in parables. And, Father, we're going to learn how this one simple little parable encourages us in the midst of opposition, in the midst of ridicule, in the day and age that we live in, when the ministry of the word of God is falling more and more on deaf ears, just like in Jesus' day and during his ministry. So, Lord God, give us grace to hear, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Holy Spirit, open up us, fill us with your word, and may we walk away refreshed and with a richer, deeper love for our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for your patience of standing there. Like so many of you already know, and I think the older we are, the more we see this happening. And I'm 54, and I know those who are older than me really see that in the last 25 to 30 years, and if you're younger, you see this, but you don't see it as enough, or as much as the older you get, you, you will, but that we live in a day and age that is really downwardly spiraling fast. I mean fast. And I think for older folks, the more you've lived, and not just in this country, around the world, but in this country, the more you, you've lived it, the more you see it, the more you sense it. And the rate of change, the rate of that downward spiral is incredible. All you have to do is look at the news, right? Look at our political climate. It's a result of our moral climate, right? 
And so you see, in the midst of that moral and political climate, one of the things happening, and I don't want to escape our ears and our eyes, and that is this. As our culture and our society goes on a downward spiral, there becomes more and more opposition to the gospel itself, to the ministry of the word of God. Okay? You've got to be able to see that. You've got to understand that. We can discern that that's in the times and days that we live in now. And it's only going to get worse apart from a movement of God, right? No question about it. As a matter of fact, I just read last week that there was a, tan- a satanist group, a satanic group that wanted, wants to, in the Boston area, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it was the Boston area in Massachusetts, wanted to start an after-school uh, program. And they compared themselves saying, well, if Child Evangelism Fellowship can do it, why can't we under the Constitution? Wow, it tells you where we've gotten to. Yeah, it's, it's really happened. They're really trying to get that going. After-school classes. And so we see that there's opposition more and more to the gospel. So it's not just a moral issue. It's just not a cultural issue. It is a heart issue. And we're going to see that as these parables unfold before our very eyes. And as a matter of fact, it's not just happening out there in our culture. I mean, you look, you hear the news. It's nothing but it just knocks the wind out of your sails. You're like, it's just so discouraging everywhere you look. You've got to turn the TV off or you're going to have a bummer of a dinner, right? Sitting at the table. Then you also have churches, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but, you know, churches begin to lose the will to discern. Churches begin to water down the gospel message. They begin to back off of including hell in the gospel presentation. They leave out repentance and just have, well, just trust in the love of God and have faith, and that's all you need, and there's no turning away from sin, and the gospel message is all the above I just said, right? And so in order to fill the pews, in order to pay the bills for buildings, you know, because the world is opposing the gospel more and more, the temptation is to water down the gospel because we've got to fill up the pews in order to pay the bills. And, and you, you know, we all know, I know, I'm a pastor, I, I know. And then the pressure that comes upon our shoulders in this kind of a climate. But I want to tell you something, folks. I am not discouraged. Not one bit. There's no reason to be discouraged. As a matter of fact, my confidence and trust in Christ is stronger than ever before. And I say this because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. End of quote. And you want to know something? Our little parable here, this one sentence, this one parable in verses 31 and 32 is a reminder that no matter how bad things get, no matter how great the opposition becomes, no matter how strong and fierce the antagonism is, Towards the ministry of the word, towards the preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Our Savior, our King, our Sovereign is on the throne, and he is building his church regardless of the amount of the opposition or the antagonism that is out there towards the gospel ministry. So don't get this. I'm not discouraged one bit. As a matter of fact, I look at the opposition as a greater, greater venue through which we can share Christ and preach the kingdom of heaven. And that's, as a matter of fact, the very reason why Jesus has this parable, the mustard seed 
couched right here. Here's some facts, by the way, about this little parable. First of all, it's number three in a series of seven parables in chapter 13. For example, verse 19, anyone hears the word of the kingdom? There is the kingdom. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Verse 31, which is our parable we're in this morning, the kingdom of heaven is number three. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 44, 45, 47, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. You have seven parables all relating to the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first three have the word seed in them. So they're kind of like put together, right? The first, the second, and the third. And the third one is our mustard seed parable. So you see, all of them have to do with the kingdom of heaven. The first three have to do with the seed, which is the ministry of the word of God, the ministry of the gospel, the proclamation of the kingdom. Here's what the kingdom of God is here in this context. When Jesus used it, it's the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of men, women, and children. It is the rule and reign of Christ as a result of being born again. It's people not just loving Jesus because he's the Savior, but because he's a loving Lord. And so we lovingly want to submit under his lordship. And so here you have this king talking about his spiritual rule and reign in the hearts of men and women. And the seed is the word of God going forth, the gospel going forth. And it's the going forth of the gospel, the seed, the word of God that produces the spiritual kingdom, which would be known as the what? The who? The church, the body of Christ. And so Jesus is preparing them for that. But let me put those little statistics aside for a minute because I want to back up and show you that these facts or statistics are given in a story. This happened, this, this, this parable was given in real life with real people at a real place in real time. And so I want to back up to show you this. and to, I, want, I want this to come alive to you. And so in order to understand this, all we need to do is back up to the beginning of chapter 12. So if you'd like to flip back a page to chapter 12, I invite you to do so. Because we're going to see that this conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees is ramping up. It is ramping up big time. As a matter of fact, you go back to chapter 9, verse 11. We see it started earlier, way back then, in verse 11 of chapter 9. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? I don't think that was a really nice question. They're not really out of real genuine concern. They're not asking out of that. They're, They're trying to trip him up. They don't like him. He's a threat to them, to their establishment. His preaching is in power, and his miracles are validating his message. You go to verse 34 of chapter 9, but the Pharisees were saying, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, we know it's not a nice game going on here. That wasn't a very nice thing to say. As a matter of fact, we learned that's blasphemy. So we see it already on the scene, but in chapter 12, it is just ramped up incredibly. Look at this. In chapter 12, verse 2, leading into and painting the scene or the occasion upon which he gives these seven parables. Verse 2 of chapter 12. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Go on to verse 10. 
Departing from there in verse 9, he went into the synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse them. There's their motive. John exposes their motive. Go down to verse 24 of chapter 12. We start in verse 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Oh, maybe, possibly. But then listen to the response of the Pharisees in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's blasphemy. And Jesus responds to that. I love how he does that. He says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. It cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. In other words, I'm not doing it in his name. And notice that it's in that context, you have verses 30 through 32, the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is the rejection of the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It is the rank foulness of unbelief. The refusal to believe Christ. Based on his word, and here, based on his miracles, and, and, and all that was going on, all the, his miracles, it validated his message. That here's the Messiah, here's the king, I am the representation of the kingdom of heaven. We get down to verse 33 and 34. It continues to get ugly, folks. Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. In verse 34, how can you being evil speak what is good? Go down to verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees, not all of them, maybe a little group of them, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. As if to say all the miracles he's done up to this point didn't matter, didn't count. Let me tell you something. No amount of miracles in this universe will ever be enough for one to believe Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, folks, and hearing by the word of God. Amen? Peter, I'm, I'm off my notes now, okay? Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, held up the word of God as being more powerful and, must tr and more trustworthy than his own experience at the Mount of Transfiguration. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21. He had this grand experience where he saw Christ and Elijah and Moses. He heard the Father talking with the Son. And old Peter wanted to build a tabernacle, and he got rebuked for that. But looking back at that experience he had while he was following Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, he's referring to that, and he says this, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And he calls them the scriptures. Beloved, we have the more sure word of the Bible than Peter's own experience. You get that? What you have in your laps this morning is absolutely powerful. It has the power of conviction. It is the sword of the Spirit, which the Spirit uses to convict us of Christ. It is a sword which changes our hearts. Let's never take the supernatural out of salvation, beloved. I'm here before you today because of a miracle. Because God has changed my heart. And so when we sing songs about the love of God, it, it just overwhelms you. And guess what? The older I get, the more overwhelming the love of God is to me. 
I'm growing in its richness and in its depth. It's not the older I get, the more calloused I become, or the more, okay, it's nice, it's fine, let's get on to something else. No, it makes you think more richly and deeply about what God has done for you and how patient God has been with me for 35 years now that I've been his child. So anyway, let's go back, okay? Ready back on the notes? So we're back in chapter 12, and you see this story unfolding, this relationship between Christ and, and these Pharisees. It's, it's, it's on this rampant pace of, of opposition and antagonism. It's terrible. So we get to chapter 13, and we look at verse 2. A large crowds are gathered. So we see what's unfolded leading to chapter 13, which we find all these parables, right? Because we've got to ask the question, why parables? Why now? And a large crowd gathered to him in verse 2 of chapter 13. So he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. You can see this picture. It got so crowded, such a big multitude, he couldn't do it on the shoreline. He had to get out into a boat, maybe 20, 30 feet, and start preaching to the multitude. But notice what he does. Verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in what? Parables. And so in this occasion where the religious elite, the establishment describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees were having this hateful relationship with Christ because they rejected him so much, they opposed him so much, all of a sudden the disciples noticed what was going on. Verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Great question. Why? Why do you speak to them this way? Why do you speak to them in parables? He gives the answer in verses 11 through 17. Verses 11 through 17. First notice the contrast between them and you. Verse 11, Jesus answered them to you. There's a pronoun to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But contrast to them, it has not been granted. Why? Because over and over and over and over again, they have rejected Jesus' teaching, his plain teachings. He's been up front with them. And not only have they rejected his teachings, they rejected his miracles. As a matter of fact, you go later on in Matthew, we learn that he did not, that they, the, the religious elite, did not want him crucified for all the good things he did before his message that he is God, that he's the Messiah. So you see in verses 11, 12, and 13, there's this contrast between you and them or they. But also notice what's next. Verses 11, excuse me, verses 14 and 15. You have a quote from Isaiah, which comes, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 6. This is very important. This is the key to understanding why Jesus went to parables all of a sudden. So if you'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, let me show you the occasion upon which God called him into the ministry of the word, the gospel ministry, so to speak. It's an Old Testament parallel to where we're at in Matthew chapter 13. You've got to understand what's going on here. Isaiah is the prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah. Things are going bad. This is a divided kingdom. This is ministering to the word of God to those in the Judah, the southern kingdom. Things are really immoral. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. As a matter of fact, you had false prophets going around saying, everything, peace, peace, everywhere is peace. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. 
And so God gives Isaiah a vision in chapter 6. He gives him a vision of God sitting on the throne. You're familiar with the story. And the lofty and exalted train of his robe is filling the temple. And we see the angels going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah is just overwhelmed with what he's experiencing and what he's seeing here. To the point where in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. When I gaze upon the glory of God, everything else becomes unclean. You alone are clean. You alone are holy, holy, holy. There is none comparable to you. And then verse 7 he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is, take, is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And then verse 8. Here it is. Here it is. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go before us? Then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I, God. Send me. Well, what did God do? He sent him. But you know where he sent him to? An unrepentant people. His whole ministry was filled with preaching to an unrepentant group of people, an unrepentant nation, an unrepentant audience that actually opposed him. Now you know why Jesus pulled out Isaiah 6 in Matthew 13. He's saying there's a parallel here of Isaiah's ministering in the midst, in the face of opposition, and my ministering of the word, the seed, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, in the midst of opposition to the religious elite. Do you see that? Look at what he says, the quote here, verses 14 and 15. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is present tense being fulfilled. Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, what Isaiah spoke of back in chapter 6, it not only applied to his day and age, but it's applying right now in my ministry, Jesus says. I am experiencing opposition just like Isaiah. Now notice this, verse 15. Well, verse 14, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. That means insensitive, calloused, without feeling. It has no effect on them. What do you think it means to be dull? Hardness of heart, maybe? What about a callous? You know, you get calluses on your fingers. Maybe you get them on the bottom of your feet. They lose feeling after a while. They become tough and hardened, right? That's the word picture going on here. Not only the scribes and Pharisees, but a lot of the multitude have been calloused to the message. All they wanted was more and more signs. More and more signs. But they were unresponsive to the word. The word of the kingdom, which is being preached to them. They didn't need more signs. They needed to trust the message. There's a lesson here for all of us right here. Right parked in verses 14 and 15. Particularly the heart of this people has become dull. It tells us something. It tells us that unbelief is never an intellectual problem. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yes, it involves the intellect, but by itself, it's not an intellectual problem. It is a heart problem. 
Are you with me? If it was an intellectual problem, he'd sit down there and debate with him and try to sway them to his side. But we understand from this right here that it's a heart problem. All you have to do is go to the seed and the sower parable, the first one, and just go to verses 20 and 21. The one in whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. There's an assumption here as that there is a degree of understanding going on to the point where they at first receive. Right? Verse 20. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, Right? The word is being preached. There's opposition. We shy away from it. Immediately he falls away. But the point is, intellectual, being intellectual, is not enough. It's a heart issue. Unbelief is an issue of the heart. And the power to change a heart is the preaching and the teaching of God's word by God's design. That's why you have the seed representing the word of God, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ going forth in these parables. But we see, just like today, we've gone from Isaiah to Jesus' day to today, 2016, August 7th, opposition to the gospel, opposition to the word of God going forth. You look at the news you see how, how the opposition to morality, you see the political system, the immorality, but folks, there's a much bigger picture going on than what you see and listen to in the news. It is the resistance to the gospel message. And it's not just spread out throughout our culture and our society. It even shows up in certain evangelical corners, churches. The enemy works everywhere he can and anywhere he can. As a matter of fact, all we have to do is go to the next parable. The second one, tares among the wheat. Listen to this. It's not just opposition from men. It's opposition from the enemy. Look at verses 24 through 30. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed, preaching the gospel, preaching the rule and the reign of Christ in the hearts of men and women, calling them to repentance, calling them to submit to his lordship, to trust him as savior, But while his men were sleeping, verse 25, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. That's a false gospel, a counterfeit gospel. There is not just worldly opposition from men. There is satanic opposition. There's a lot more warfare going on than just what our eyes can see. Ephesians describes warfare as going on behind the scenes where eyes cannot see. And Jesus knew this. So not only is there opposition from the Jews and religious leaders, you also have this picture of the tares in the wheat that the enemy himself is planting tares right next to the wheat, and it happens when we're even sleeping. Opposition, opposition, antagonism. The ministry of the word of God is going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is still on the throne. Jesus Christ is sovereign. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And no matter how fierce the opposition becomes, no matter where it is coming from, Jesus says, I am building my church and the gates of hell shall not, what? Prevail. Be encouraged. Hey, we're in a win-win situation, aren't we? Threaten me with death. 
I don't care. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm not boasting. I'm going to boast because it's just an opportunity to share the gospel, right? What is opposition? Just another opportunity to share Christ, to live for him. Knowing that the sufferings of this world that we face today are nothing compared to the glory which is to come. What a perspective, what an attitude that he wants all of us to have. Regardless of your role in the propagation of the gospel. So what's the point of the parables? It's an example, it's, it's, a, sign, it's a judgment of God upon those who have already rejected Christ. They blasphemed him. They, they associated his works with that of the devil, Beelzebul. They ridiculed him. They wanted to kill him. It was fierce. And so I'm going to start speaking in parables. Because I don't want this group or those who follow them, to, they're, they're, they're judged. And he's going, and I know that those that I'm seeking after and those who seek after me in response, if I give a parable, they're going to come to me and they're going to ask. They're going to go to one of my disciples and say, what does this mean? Because they're hungering and thirsting for Christ. So basically, the point of parables, it's it's an example of judgment and grace. Judgment and grace. So Christ, in response to the religious leaders, the hardness of their hearts, their dullness, responds in parables. And this takes us to the mustard seed. The mustard seed. I mean, because you've got to think for a moment. You're a disciple. You're one of the disciples, right? And you're witnessing and watching all this going on. You're, you're listening to the conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus. You're hearing their comments about, this guy's listening to the other devil. And they're going, we're following him. You're calling him the devil? Uh-oh. Right? You see what's going on? They're not ignorant. They know what's going on. They're, they got eyes to see and ears to hear. They understand the opposition, and so they're watching it. They're seeing it. They might even heard some rumors about plotting to arrest Jesus somewhere along the line here. Definitely later on. So they know the antagonism. They see it. It's real life with real people in real time. And so these guys are watching this going on. Meanwhile, Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. Oh man, this is getting tense in here. I mean, it's just getting tense. These guys are watching. And meanwhile, they don't really see Jesus getting very physical with anybody at all. He's just preaching, doing some miracles here and there, validating his message. I mean, we want, we want Jesus to seize control. We want him to go to Rome, as a matter of fact, and take over. But they don't see him doing any of that. And so they've got to be wondering and watching and waiting as they even get to the point, why are you speaking in parables? It says because they're dull. The time is just like it was in Isaiah's time in chapter 6. And beloved, I believe we're in a time like that today. We live in a country that's been saturated with the gospel. Think about it. Compared to other nations, we can't even go into a public school and share Christ. They've taken prayer out of schools. They've taken the Ten Commandments out of the, out of the courts. We can't even have a manger scene in public places or government places anymore. Over and over and over and over again. We go to Belize, you go to Guatemala, you go to Haiti, I've been to those places, El Salvador. You can go to public schools and share Christ anywhere, anytime you want. You just call the principal up and say, hey, we're coming. And they'll set you up. What's going on? 
Ears have become dull. I'll tell you what's been going on. Romans chapter 1's been going on. I'm sure you might be familiar with Romans chapter 1. But they exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God, the one and only true God. They've taken him off the scene. They treat God as if he doesn't exist. I'm talking generally now, our culture, our society. We have treated him as if God doesn't exist. And so if God doesn't exist, then Genesis 1 and 2 creation doesn't exist. So now we've got to come up with a, a different theory in their thinking. To me, it's not a theory. Okay, it's literal creation. But their thinking, I'm telling you, their mindset is, so we get rid of creation, we get rid of the Bible because we got rid of God. We might keep some nice things in the Bible about God as love and, you know, things like that. You know, the nice things that we like. You know, we chop up the Bible, keep what we like, discard what we don't like. That's what they've done, right? And in that process, you re- redefine who God is. You make an idol in your own mind. Anyway, I'm going on now, okay? So they take God out of the picture. You take creation out of the picture. And what are you left with? We need a theory. How did we get here? Hmm. Let's come up with evolution. So you replace the God of the Bible. You take him off the scene. That means there's no creator, right? You take Genesis 1 and 2 out. And, and the fall, by the way, the entrance of sin is just kind of, you know, it's just a, it's an allegory. You, you know, I'm just telling you how they think. And so you, you wipe all that off. God's loving we're a decent people. We're not all that bad. We got our differences, right? But we should just love one another. And so <clears throat> they come up with their own rules, their own regulations. Do you see what's happened to our country? It happens throughout church history. It happens throughout history. It happens in other parts of the world, right? When a nation or a society, a group of people, all of a sudden come to a conclusion that God does not exist. They take him off the scene. They take creation off the scene. And there's left this great void. And now they have to fill it with evolution. They fill it with tolerance. And now the new morality is that there is no morality. It's whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I love you the way you are. You're okay. Peace, peace. Everywhere, peace. Beloved, that comes out of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And those prophets had to say in the midst of that environment, in the midst of the opposition, when the false prophets and teachers were saying, peace, peace, everywhere's peace, they were going, no, there is not peace. You need to repent. Jesus was facing a similar, if not the same, opposition. And it wasn't coming from, here, get this picture. In Jesus' day, it wasn't coming so much from those outside. It was coming from within Jerusalem, within Judaism itself. And now, in the midst of that context, these guys needed tremendous, what, encouragement. Because if you're like me or if we're like them, we're going to get discouraged. How in the world is this ever going to work? And not too many months later down the road, Jesus dies. And so here we are left with these guys. Even preaching the kingdom, but the king's dead. The opposition won. And so now you see why Jesus presented the mustard seed. It was in this environment of opposition, antagonism, that he encourages them and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed on his fields. And this is smaller than the other seeds, but when it is full grown... It is larger than the garden plants, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Three lessons, real quick. Number one, lesson number one, it's the central lesson of all this, of this parable. 
Though the kingdom of heaven began in obscurity, though it began very, very infantile, very small, it ends up having a significant impact on a global scale. Think about it for a minute. Think about it. I mean, think about how obscure the kingdom of heaven was when it first arrived as in its king, Jesus, in a manger surrounded by animals, born in Judea, excuse me, in Judah, where he grew up in insignificant backwaters of the Roman Empire. Who heard of Judea? Judah? Who's that? Even Nazareth, his hometown. Nathaniel even asked, he goes, guys, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How obscure. Jesus didn't come in, you know, here I am. As a matter of fact, you look at the end of his ministries, there were very few disciples around. They scattered, they hid, they were scared. You see the little mustard seed starting out? As a matter of fact, you get to the beginning of Acts. And before the day of Pentecost, there's only 120 people up in a room praying. 120 people. After all that ministry, out of the perfect preaching messages there ever was ever preached by Jesus, okay? And all those miracles, he's dead and you got 120 people in an upper room praying. Oh God, what's going to happen? Oh, you know. But what's happened since? That mustard seed has grown huge, hasn't it? And beloved, today it continues to grow. It's growing in the Boston area. It's growing in El Salvador. It's growing in Russia. It's growing in China. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower my building, the building of my church. And by the way, Jesus takes it very personal. Lesson number one. The rule and reign of Christ in the heart of men and women will spread to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. You see how obscure it started out, how small that mustard seed is? Let's look forward to beyond 2016. Listen to these words. Revelation 5. This is our future, folks. This is how big and enormous this is going to be. This mustard seed is going to be huge. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that is Christ of the Father, who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They couldn't help themselves but fall down in the presence of holiness and majesty overcome with his presence, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, you who were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from, here it is, here's how huge this mustard seed gets from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That is our future, beloved. Be encouraged. Yeah, you turn on the news, and it's not just it's an immoral society, but the opposition to the gospel is growing more and more intense. But we have every more and more reason to rejoice because our king is alive, he's on the throne, he's sovereign, and he's coming again. Our trust in the midst of opposition should be blossoming like never before. Not because of the opposition, because the word of God tells us to expect it. He prepared his disciples, said the world's going to hate you because it hates me. So let's not be afraid that the world does not like the ministry of the word of God and that they're going to oppose it more and more and more. 
Live for Christ more and more and more. Be bold for Christ more and more. Be a humble servant for Christ. Look for opportunities to share Christ, to share the hope that is within you. Lesson number two. The kingdom of heaven, though it at first is insignificant, becomes a great blessing around the globe. From obscurity to popularity, and now from being insignificant impact to a great and huge worldwide global impact and influence. Notice the, last, the verse 32. That's where this comes from. And this is a smaller than our seas, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Here it is, so that, the purpose statement, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I interpret that as a blessing. The church is to be a blessing in the society and its culture around it. Do you know the first great awakening just didn't have a profound impact upon the churches, but upon the communities that surrounded those churches? We learn that Christians are a blessing to the surrounding culture and society when they live in obedience to God's word. It's not just for us to hoard our, the blessings ourselves, but it flows from us onto our neighbor, onto the coworker. Onto the business across the street or who I do business with. So we live in obedience to God's word. It has an overflow effect. So that people start looking at it's really weird. He's going through a hard time. He's still got a smile on his face. Why? Man, his integrity is up here. He had an opportunity to make an extra $20,000 if he kind of like, you know, did a little... Una- no one would have noticed it. It was unethical. You, you know what I mean? But, but why does he do... He, I know he would have gotten away with it, but he didn't do it. He could have had a simple, easily, measly 20, 25, whatever, $1,000 for his family, but why didn't he do it? I, I don't get it. And then they ask, and then we share that it's not about my life. It's not about the money. It's about my Savior. It's about my Lord. I'm not the master of my own life. I'm not the master of my own fate. He's my master. As a matter of fact, I just simply change masters. Sin used to be my master. Now I willingly place myself under the lordship, the loving lordship of Jesus Christ. And now I joyfully want to do what he wants me to do. And I want to obey him, that's because I have to, but because I love to, I want to. In short, when the gospel of the kingdom is practiced and preached, the world benefits. Our surrounding communities benefit. The unbelievers that we are in contact with, they benefit. This means what? Lesson number two, it talks about the pervasive powerful influence of the gospel in our lives. It is in us and it should be flowing from us. Lesson number three, the last one. And this is really one is inferred. This lesson is inferred from the first two. The kingdom of heaven, both in its reach and its impact, in its growth and in and its influence is nothing more than a work of God. It's not us. We have nothing to boast about. This lesson number three, it's very humble, isn't it? It's very humble. All God asks us to do is to be faithful, to be loyal, and to be humble. And you know what? Those are the servants that he uses. Honorable vessels for his use. 
He just wants the word of God to flow in us, to flow from us, to communicate the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, so that people could see that he's real, so that people would want to hunger and thirst for him just like we have and we do. You see, in this story of the mustard seed and the overall occasion, the Messiah was facing more and more rejection, more and more opposition. He would soon face what? Persecution. Crucifixion, actually. He would die. Then his disciples would go and hide in fear for their own lives. And so in the midst of this, knowing that this was coming up, he, in the midst of these parables of, you know, look, parable number one. Real quick, what is that about? The soils. Well, it just means that though on the surface it looks like a lot of people are receiving him, the first three seeds they're not. Only the fourth one is. That's kind of disappointing. How many of you know people or somebody who verbalizes and says they're a Christian, but then you look at their lifestyle over the years and you don't see it? That's going to be soil one, two, or three. The fourth one bears fruit. They're there. And a lot of them go to church every once in a while. And then there's this opposition of the enemy coming and, and planting tares among the wheat. And you got the religious leaders. I mean, it's just a mess. And it's in the midst of this mess, this opposition, that the disciples needed to be reminded with a mustard seed that Jesus is still on the throne. Our King, our Savior, our Sovereign is on the throne building his church. And we, because of him, cannot and will not fail. Times are tough, and they could get a lot tougher. The gospel is opposed. It could be facing further and even more intense opposition. But always be reminded with the little story, this little parable of a mustard seed, that the kingdom still goes forth. It's still increasing. It's still increasing not just in scope, it's increasing in its influence and in its power at the same time. Why? Because Christ is on his throne. Christ is on his throne. Be encouraged. I hope when you think this week, when you hear the news or think about what's going on out there, that you would stop right there in your tracks and gaze upon Christ and realize that the Word of God says... Regardless of what you see happening in your society, in your culture, Jesus is still on the throne. That's the mustard seed parable, beloved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we get so discouraged today. I'll just speak for myself, God, and you know that I've talked to you about it. And you wonder, and I wonder why people just don't listen. It seems like falling on deaf ears, becoming more dull or callous, hard-hearted. And yet, dear God, I'm reminded, we are reminded through your word, it's speaking right now to us as preached to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And from his throne, he is building his church. And so, God, we have every reason to be encouraged, every reason to be excited. We do not want to shy away from opposition. We want to live for the king in the midst of opposition and do it with great joy, with great hope, and with his great love. Father, bless your church more and more with your presence through the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.